Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative. State's Health Commissioner, Dr. Jim McDonald, is offering some guidance on how to deal with the new COVID-19 strains that are emerging this summer. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more. Commissioner McDonald says once again some new strains of COVID are emerging and infection rates are on the rise. The current dominant variant is known as EG5, nicknamed Eris, as well as FL151. The new variants have similar symptoms to previous strains, including fever, cough, sore throat, and a runny nose, as well as changes in taste and smell. While they appear to be even more contagious than previous versions of COVID, they are not believed to be any more severe than the recent milder strains. The health commissioner says that now, more than three and a half years since the disease emerged, most people can regard it more like any other illness that requires prompt treatment and sensible precautions. Strep throat's a treatable disease, but it wasn't always a treatable disease. But right now, if we have a sore throat, we think we have strep throat, we go to our doctor, we get some penicillin, we're feeling better the next day. I'm not saying COVID's going to be like that, but I think we need to think about it that way. Like, in other words, yeah, if you get sick with COVID, it's treatable. For a long time, McDonald was a novid, meaning he never contracted COVID, even though he actively saw patients during the height of the pandemic. But he finally came down with the virus this past July. He says the way he handled the illness can serve as a guide for how seriously most members of the public should react when they see the telltale line that indicates a positive reading on a COVID test. Here's what I did when I got COVID. I tested Four hours after I had symptoms, I was testing positive. Well, that was interesting, right? Yeah, I tell you something, 22 hours after I started having symptoms, I took my first dose of Paxlovid. So I called my healthcare provider. I had a had a visit the next day. Paxlovid is an antiviral medication widely used to treat COVID-19 symptoms. McDonald, who is fully vaccinated and boosted, says it worked. 16 hours after I took my first dose, I could tell I was heading in the right direction. The federal Centers for Disease Control continue to recommend that people who test positive stay home for five days to avoid spreading the virus, and if you have to go out, wear a mask. The health commissioner says older people and those with underlying conditions need to take more precautions, including keeping up to date with booster shots. McDonald says he's been told by CDC that the latest booster, designed to react to the new strains, should be available next month. When it comes out, third or fourth week of September, I'm hoping a lot of New Yorkers get their arm over to the pharmacy or their health care provider and get that new vaccine. McDonald says he anticipates that the new vaccine will be available to everyone who wants one. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. 
The New York Public Interest Research Group describes itself as a nonpartisan, nonprofit research and public education organization. They seek to inform New Yorkers on issues concerning voting rights, energy, and the environment, government accountability, public health, consumer protection, higher education, New York City mass transit, and more. NYPIRG's sister organization focuses on college students, many of whom work for NYPIRG, which has a presence on many SUNY campuses in the state. I spoke with Blair Horner this week. He's the executive director of NYPIRG and asked him if informing young college students about the important issues would get them to actually vote in elections. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, our guys do, but the... Hey, 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 I'm a broadcast journalist. They say they do. <laughs> well, we know that 27% or so, or 30% do in the last election. So some of them vote, most of them don't. And that's been a historic problem going all the way back to when 18-year-olds first got the right to vote in 1971 in New York and 1972 in the country. It's always been an issue. Actually, the fight for young people to get the right to vote goes back to 1941, when the draft age was lowered to 18. So the slogan, you know, old enough to fight but not old enough to vote, goes back a long way. But young people have the right to vote. And uh, the problem always is, you know, is the system open to uh, making it easy for them to register? Because unlike every other constitutional right, you have to register to get it. And we view that as a problem, the various obstacles. And so there have been changes in the law that should make it easier. And we're hoping in 24 that there'll be a big turnout. Well, let's go there because we're going to see a whole new crop of young people that are going to be able to vote in that 24 election. Certainly, we, at least from survey research, see that many young people are concerned about the environment and health care and other very important issues. And yet, in order to get them to the polls, what New York has done is put ballot boxes on campus now across the state. I wonder, you know, you get it closer to them. You bombard the campus with information. Hopefully the professorate tells their classes, get over there to vote. And maybe you think it'll have any impact in 24 if more young people vote. Well, I I think if more young people vote, it will have a tremendous impact because the United States is sort of a polarized electorate now. And if you're looking for movement in terms of voters, it's going to be the younger ones. If you can tap into them and get them to turn out, it could swing an election. There are many congressional districts, for example, in New York, where the winner in 22 won by a very slim margin, and they all, you know, pretty much every district has colleges in them. The state law was changed for the 22 election cycle and going forward, which says that if you have 300 registered voters on a campus or more, there has to be a polling place. They didn't seem to have much of an impact in the 22 election cycle. One of the reasons could be, although we don't really know for sure, is that if the easy way to register to vote is to go through the Department of Motor Vehicles website because it populates your information and you just say you want to be registered, but that registers you at the address that's on your license, which may not be the place where you live come the fall. And so it may be that there's a lot of college students who knew they were registered to vote, thought they could vote on campus, and then to their surprise when they went to the polling place could not vote. You know, the previous host of this program, Dr. Alan Shartuck, you say, is that accidentally on purpose? Why wouldn't that have been thought of by the experts, you know? And why aren't there forms to register there on campus along with the booth? Yeah, I mean, there there is now an, another new law that went on the books for this coming year where students can register to vote online through the State Board of Elections website. But it seems, again, you know, none of these things are done deals until the actual election shows up and we have some time to fix things. But it looks like you have to create like a state account in order to register Man. online. I mean, you're, and so anytime you throw up an obstacle for a first-time voter, it makes it harder. So what we do on the campuses where we're at 
we help the person register to vote. We actually stand there and here's the form. Here's what the address is if you want to register on campus. Put your address in. If you don't want to register on campus, wherever you live, we sign the document. We review it. We make sure that it's all filled out right. And then we file it for them. So we try to make it as easy as possible. But not every <laughs> campus has that level of intense voter registration. And so it can easily be that there is at least some percentage of young people Now, we'll see what happens. There's this online opportunity. Maybe that can be made more streamlined in a way to allow people to register to vote. But again, there is this issue of where's your address? And every county sort of deals with college voter registration slightly differently. And so it makes it more complicated on But to your point, is that on purpose? Well, it's on purpose to the extent that nobody's grappled with it and tried to fix it other than advocates. And so, I mean, you know, you get elected to office by the people who show up at the polls. You start bringing new people in, and that creates uncertainty as to whether or not you'll win again. And so there is some caution that often plays out when you're dealing with lawmakers and trying to get them to change the laws to make a constitutional right, which is what it is in New York, a constitutional right to vote made easy instead of hard. We're speaking with Blair Horner. He is the executive director of NYPIRG, the New York Public Interest Research Group. Blair, you know, you say your group is nonpartisan. Play a little devil's advocate here. But, you know, you're just talking about young people. They're progressive. They like a lot of progressive issues. You know, you're just talking about voting rights. It sounds more liberal than conservative to me. How do you battle charges that you're an independent cover for a liberal organization? Well, we certainly have a point of view, and we have policy positions on issues, but it's not based on partisanship or even ideology. It's based on best practice and what the science tells you. So in our polarized country, our toxically polarized country, believing in science can often be tagged as a partisan, you have a partisan perspective because you believe in science. And so, for example, uh, there are uh, people argue that, um, you know, you're a, a liberal Democrat in disguise if you believe in the science of climate change, which is a fact, and it is science. And the response to it is not to pump as much greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, because that's what's contributing to global warming. Now, that can sound like a liberal perspective, but it is rooted in science. And the response of how you deal with it follows what the world's experts say we should do. So, again, you know, one way to undermine for industries to undermine reforms is to make a toxic environment, muddy the waters so that the supporters of the reform can be tagged in some ideological partisan way. That ain't true. And so, you know, again, people are going to say whatever they're going to say, but that's the way we approach our issues is to look at it in terms of best practice that you find in the rest of the country or the world. And um, what does the science tell you uh, should be the path to solution of whatever that particular problem is? So, well, you know, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned climate change and the environment. It's one of the issues you're concerned about, as we all are concerned about. I mean, wildfire, smoke, fires we just saw, unbelievable historic fires in Maui, you know, the floods that the Northeast has been experiencing, all the other extreme storms that we're seeing, not only in this country, but around the world. As you said, it's science, and we're seeing it with our very own eyes now. But the question, if we put it on a political spectrum from liberal to conservative, I spoke to Ed Cox, the head of the Republican Party in New York last week, Blair, 
And I said, why won't the Republicans embrace the job potential of climate change? So, for example, in New York, jobs could be created to help mitigate climate change. We have infrastructure. We have all sorts of things we need to do to get our communities ready as the climate is changing. And he said, no, no, you know, it's too little, too late. The New York can't do it on its own. So we don't want to spend that money. Yeah. I mean, I've known Ed Cox a long time. I view him as a, you know, serious person who thinks about where he's at, but he, he couldn't be more wrong. I mean, this is a worldwide problem. You don't say, well, because we don't, it, we can't control the outcome that much because we're only the 12th biggest economy in the world, that we can't contribute, we can't stop China from doing, therefore we should do nothing. That's a defeatist view that leads to the situation we're in now. The solution is everyone has to do something about it, every level of government. And in uh, the United States, it's hard to get anything done through the Congress, particularly now that it's split, and because you have people that say, well, it costs too much. You know, of course, they don't consider what are the costs to catastrophic climate change. Existential uh, cost. cost? <laughs> That's right. What is, what is the cost to uh, lower Manhattan being underwater? What is the cost to skyrocketing asthma rates? What is the cost to wildfires that are out of control that burn cities to the ground? I mean, those are huge costs that nobody talks about. It's somehow as if the status quo would be the, the cost forever. And by adding costs to move to a green economy, you're somehow that's that's the analysis. That's ridiculous. That's Blair Horner, executive director of NYPERG, the New York Public Interest Research Group. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai visited the Albany area this week, the first anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. Tai was in Malta to tour manufacturer Global Foundry's chip-making facility. An important part of my job is uh, coming out and traveling the United States to make sure that when I am representing uh, the interests of our country in uh, trade forums, that um, I am being informed by uh, the conversations that I'm having, the meetings I'm doing, um, the workers, and also the companies in their communities where they live and work and where they are. Um, here in New York, I'm also here to spend time with Congressman Paul Tonko, who is a good friend of mine, to uh, see the community that he represents. And what I think is really, really important about this community is we are seeing exactly um, where our industrial history has been, where it's taken us over time, and an erosion in uh, industries here. And then right now, a moment of real rebirth and reinvestment. Democratic Capital Region Congressman Paul Tonko of the 20th District joined the ambassador for the tour. Afterward, the two traveled to Schenectady for a roundtable discussion with Communications Workers of America union leaders and workers. I wanted her to um, make certain that there, there were efforts to visit places like Global Foundries that are in a global marketplace competing for jobs and providing services for companies around the world. So it's important to keep that context of trade and the importance of it, 
but at the same time having a meeting with the union workers who have seen through generations what has happened where we lost that impact of union jobs in the area and how contracts have been hurtful in the past. Bronco says the chip maker is poised for growth due to demand from automakers and the telecommunications industry. So that history being shared here with great passion by union voices at the table and her uh, being in that same sort of thinking, uh, knowing that there's a way to do this that will not harm American jobs, union jobs. So bringing that discussion together so that we can understand each other's passion and, and establish the goals and principles that need to move us forward with negotiations on these global partnerships and trade outcomes. Biden administration officials and Democrats have been touting the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act. Ty tells WAMC the Chips and Science Act also had its anniversary in August and making the capital region a semiconductor chip manufacturing hub is a component of reasserting American innovation. There are so many pressing needs, as President Biden says, we are living at a real inflection point. There's a digital transformation that's happening around the world. There's a climate crisis. It's creating a need for new technologies. Um, there is uh, um, uh, there are geopolitical changes happening around us, and then we've just woken up to the fact over these past few years that our supply chains are sprawling and fragile, and globalization itself has got to evolve and adapt. But I think at the very top of the list in terms of what we need to be paying the most attention to is reinvesting and investing in America and in Americans to focus on the fact that our economy and our country is made up of people. Ty says it is the government's responsibility to ensure Americans have economic opportunity and a bright future. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. The Sullivan County Department of Public Health is reminding residents to get vaccinated in light of an increase of pertussis cases in the county. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King with more. Better known as whooping cough, pertussis is an airborne illness characterized by intense coughing fits that end in a distinctive whooping sound, signaling that someone is gasping for air. Department of Public Health Director Karen Holden says Sullivan County confirmed five new cases of pertussis just last week. She says that makes a total of 16 cases so far this year, the most the county has seen since 2016. Holden says pertussis often starts with basic cold symptoms, which worsen over the first two weeks. Patients might develop a slight fever, vomiting, shortness of breath, or turn blue in addition to the coughing fits. Holden says those fits can last up to 10 weeks or longer. So it's not just where someone coughs, um, like when you have allergies or when you have a regular cold or bronchitis, but people actually get coughing fits and it makes that whooping noise. Uh, sometimes older children or adults don't get that whooping noise. Children that are young get it because their airway is smaller, which is why it's so important uh, that if you're concerned about it that you see a, a provider. That's right. Older populations can catch and spread whooping cough, too. It's often talked about in the context of children, though, because pertussis poses a particular threat to kids and babies. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has seen a rise in cases since the late 1980s. In between 2010 and 2020, up to 20 babies died each year in the U.S. The younger a baby is, the less developed their immune system is, and the more likely they are to need hospitalization. The CDC says whooping cough can lead to complications like violent shaking, pneumonia, apnea, and encephalopathy, or brain disease. Holden says unvaccinated children and adults can also experience more severe symptoms and complications. 
And so, in tune with National Immunization Awareness Month, the county is reminding residents to get the jab and boost it. I think that we focus mostly on our children, like, oh, the kids have all their, their shots, people will say. But as adults, we also need to continue to take good care of ourselves. And one of those ways is to make sure that we're vaccinated for diseases we can prevent against. Holden notes the vaccine for whooping cough is lumped in with the vaccine for diphtheria and tetanus. The CDC recommends infants and children get a total of five jabs of the DTaP vaccine over the course of early childhood, three shots and two boosters up until age six. Then the Tdap booster is recommended for patients between the ages of 11 and 12, and then every 10 years after that. Holton says pregnant women can also help give their baby some immunity in those first two months by getting the Tdap booster during the early part of their third trimester. But often, she says, people forget all about the Tdap booster, or they don't remember it until something comes up. Most people will think about, well, when did I get my last tetanus? You know, did you get cut or oh, step on a rusty nail? Um, but it's super easy. Um, I certainly wouldn't recommend a specific pharmacy, but any pharmacy you can call, uh, see if they have the vaccine. And you can also just log on to some of them and make an appointment. It took me 15 minutes. Beyond vaccinations, if you have cold symptoms, Holden says you can help stop the spread by covering your coughs and sneezes, discarding tissues, washing your hands frequently, refraining from shared cups or silverware, and staying away from others until you've been checked out by a health care provider. Above all, Holden urges new parents to be mindful of family and friends as they come to visit their newborns. They often screen grandparents. Uh, someone who's going to be babysitting your new your new baby. Uh, you should think about, you know, their siblings. Are they up to date? Any aunts and uncles? You know, everyone wants to come and visit, right? They, everyone wants to visit the baby. So make sure that friends and family and loved ones are up to date on their vaccines. If you or your provider needs more information, Holden says the county has a registered nurse or epidemiologist on call 24-7 at 845-292-5910. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. As food insecurity has grown across the state, officials in Schenectady County have launched an effort to combat food insecurity. The Legislative Gazette's Alexander Babby with more. The Schenectady County Food Council is a collaboration of area organizations working to increase food security. Speaking Thursday in front of Schenectady City Hall, Democratic Mayor Gary McCarthy says the efforts will reduce a 10.3% food insecurity rate in the county, nearly 16% among children, double the national average. You want people to be able to get basic nourishment, some of the basic things in life, and so we're here today to make sure that we're able to deliver that, to make it happen, and make everyone in Schenectady feel secure and so that they have a level of dignity that they can enjoy the good things that are happening within our community. Christy Milligan, director of grants and community programs at the Schenectady Foundation, says the effort will directly tackle food insecurity. It's being supported with $600,000 in American Rescue Plan Act funding. This is really our community-wide, county-wide effort to make sure that we're really digging into the issues of why food insecurity exists in Schenectady County and making sure that we're figuring out the best, strongest, most effective ways to make sure that our county is taken care of. State Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara, a Democrat whose district includes parts of Schenectady and Montgomery counties, and a member of the council's steering board, says collaboration is key. This initiative brings together leaders from various organizations, elected officials like myself, and a diverse range of partners, all 
uniting under a common mission to enhance food security here in the city of Schenectady and across Schenectady County. Natasha Pernicka, CEO of the Food Pantries for the Capital District, says the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated residents' struggles. We are seeing food pantries from around the state and locally reporting over 100% increases of people seeking assistance in the past year. According to Feeding America, there's over 14,000 people in Schenectady County that are considered food insecure. Pernicka says her organization is referring more people to food pantries this year, about a 20% increase. Amari Tanyon Santos, executive director of Schenectady Community Ministries, says access to healthy food is key. Reliable and consistent food access is the number one barrier in food insecurity. Reliable transportation, consistent food quality, religious and cultural practices, immediate need and consistent resourcing are all challenges. Aideen Viscusi, who serves on the board of directors of the Electric City Food Co-op, which aims to open a community-owned grocery store in Schenectady this year, says the Food Council is learning from others like it. We're joining actually 15 other food councils that exist just in upstate New York alone. So there's this bubbling that's come up since COVID. We're just one food council of 16 that are meeting in Syracuse next week. Um, to learn from each other. Some of these food councils are a little bit more advanced than ours. They started a few years ago. Viscusi says $4 million in funding for the co-op from the city and county are a start, but $6 million would be ideal to establish a new local grocery store. Viscusi points out that minority neighborhoods often lack the same food options as wealthier, wider neighborhoods. This is really, you know, we don't like to say a food desert because it's really not a desert. A desert is a naturally occurring ecosystem in the world. This is more like food apartheid. This is the food system working exactly as it was designed. It's white middle class people who have cars who can afford you know, disposable income to get their food. Mona Golub is vice president of public relations and consumer services for Northeast Grocery. The combined price chopper market 32 and tops, as well as a member of the council steering board. She says the grocery chain takes an active role in addressing food insecurity. We've been working in fresh recovery for nearly a decade now with all 12 of the regional Feeding America food banks that are in our marketing areas. There's also the farmer's market, which runs every Thursday from May until November 1st from 9.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Kathy Shear, who manages the market, says it's a good place for people in need to shop. Right now we're offering a special deal with... Uh, food stamps that people can get a $2 coupon for every $2 in food stamps that they take off of their card. So basically doubling their their money. And it's right here so they don't have to go that far to go shopping. So it is helping. And we also have um, had a, Kathy Albert from the Senior Long-Term Care uh, handing out uh, $25 booklets of coupons for low-income seniors. More information about the Food Council can be found at WMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Alexander Babby. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at WAMCpodcast.org or anywhere. He gets your podcast. Look for program number 2333. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.